Good morning. Welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. Today's episode of our podcast is being recorded in front of a live audience here at RBC Water Park Place in downtown Toronto. Now, for those of you who are regulars, uh, regular listeners to our podcast or here in our uh, live audience, you know that we focus on technology and how it's changing everything around us. But when you think about that kind of disruption and maybe what a digitally enabled future looks like, I'm guessing your mind doesn't race to your local hospital. Well, it should. Healthcare should be seen as the biggest opportunity for digital disruption that we have in a positive way. It has everything that other sectors who we talk to uh, really yearn for. It has scale. It has data. It has money. And it's got a really, really big problem. When I was a kid, there were a dozen kids for every person over the age of 80. Today, there's more seniors than kids. A decade from now, 25% of our population is going to be seniors. And here's the real challenge. As we get older, and we're getting older, we get more expensive. Today, we're spending $160 billion a year on healthcare. A decade from now, that's projected to be $200 billion. And half of that, half of that is going to go towards the care of seniors. Like most of you, I've tried to navigate the system for elderly relatives. It's a nightmare. I'll never forget being in a hospital ward one day with my, uh, my late mother and trying to help a nurse read the handwriting on a diagnosis sheet left by a previous shift. You've probably all been in that awkward situation of trying to help an elderly relative remember the medications they were supposed to take that day. I mean, seriously, Franz Kafka couldn't make this up. And yet, in households across the country right now, this is reality. We have to do better. But you'll hear today that we can do better. We're joined by two great leaders in the healthcare space. They're real innovators who are going to talk to us about all the opportunities that we have with digital technology to disrupt the future of healthcare, uh, especially for elders, and to help us better manage what we call, what others have called, the silver tsunami. We're joined this morning by Mike Wessinger. He's the founder and CEO of Point Click Care, one of Canada's most impressive software companies uh, that's leading some of the revolution in North American elder care. And Michelle D'Emmanuel, who's president and CEO of Trillium Health Partners. Michelle is a former banking and real estate executive, a senior bureaucrat in the Ontario government, and I should point out the inventor of North America's first money-back guarantee for government services. So Mike and Michelle, welcome to RBC Disruptors. Good to be here. Thank you. Um, Mike, I, I, I want to start with you because you've talked a lot about this challenge and you've been at it for a quarter of the century, uh, really a quarter of a century. And we've seen some progress, but uh, not nearly enough. What aren't we doing right? Yeah, I think the um, part of the challenge, specifically with, um, uh, with the, the senior care sector and, and technology is, you know, we have the advantage of this uh, sector. It skipped an entire generation of technology. You know, if you look at long-term care facilities, assisted living provided, it wasn't like they had to take mainframe systems and old-school client-server technology and, uh, and, and replace it with something new and went through a full replacement cycle. So we had the luxury of being able to go in with you know, often a, 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 a clean slate that was 
There was really nothing in there, so there wasn't really much to disrupt. But the downside is there, there's a lot of work to do in order to implement technology for the first time, and there's no dollars to do it. The, the margins in long-term care across North America are razor thin, but ultimately the bigger problem is we've got to change the caregiver to patient ratio because the, the you know today, um, if you just fast forward at when the silver tsunami hits, and it hasn't hit today, people go, wasn't well, already here, the, the, the gray tsunami is already here. Well, it isn't. Because the people start to consume long-term post-acute care services about the average age of 83. Boomers aren't 83. The reason why the, you know, the, the demographic of 83-year-olds has been pretty flat for the last decade. And the reason why was nobody was having kids during the Depression. That starts to tick up this year and hits like a wall in about four years and carries on for, for decades after that. So if you think we have a, a, a challenge today, it's only going to be worse. And the only way you're going to solve that problem is if you change the caregiver to, um, to patient ratio. And that technology and innovation are going to be the, the keys to getting that done. What, what's the ratio now and what do you think we need to get it to? You know, I, it depends on what the profession is and it, pretends, it depends on what the setting is. But, you know, I look at, you know, simple things like care coordination that we have with some of our hospital customers who are trying to manage their post-acute population after they leave the building. And their, their ratio is about 1 to 20 or 1 to 30 lives that they can manage after they leave their, their hospital. And the numbers they need to get to are going to be something like 1 to 200 it's going to be an order of magnitude change for them to be able to uh, to afford it. So, in a lot of areas, we you know this isn't a, we need to be twenty or thirty percent better. We're going to have to be order of magnitude uh, better. Michelle, t- give give us some background on uh, on on Trillium Health Partners. People aren't probably not familiar with it or, or don't appreciate it that it's one of the country's biggest community hospitals, a million and a half people, kind of in your your catchment in one of the most diverse places probably on the planet. It's, it's incredible, <laughs> the, uh, the community that you serve. Yeah, so just to give you a sense of Trillium, we, we service uh, everybody from birth to end of life. Um, last year, we did 272,000 emergency visits. If you take Sunnybrook, uh, UHN, St. Mike's, and half of Mount Sinai, we did more emergency visits than all those hospitals put together. And about 60% of those emergency visits every year are people over the age of 60, and about 55% of them are over the age of 55, or uh, 65. And when you get into 75 and 85, you're still in that 55% range. So you saw your numbers up there were 23% of growth in our aging population. But we can see that with technology, new sciences, people are living longer, and people are living longer with more complex needs. And the interplay, I mean, there's a reason we've got, uh, we invited you both to be here, because the interplay between hospitals and uh, homes is really important. Probably yes. most people appreciate how difficult it is. It's like going from one country to another, and the, the lack of communication, the lack of uh, tech interfaces is, is a challenge. But I, I want to get both your thoughts on what the opportunities are, what you're seeing. Michelle, stay with you because you're a big spender on technology. Uh, you, you, you've got an enormous client base, as you said, but a uh, big team trying to innovate mm-hmm. all the time uh, and lots of cost pressures. And mm-hmm. We all know that we can't afford what uh, is out there now and certainly not afford that tsunami that is coming at us. So when you think about all those seniors coming into the hospital, usually for good reason, uh, you don't want to turn them away. You can't turn them away. What opportunities are you seeing today in technology to better, better address it? Well, I think one of the first things is actually not having people come to hospital. 
I mean, I don't think we, we wake up any morning wanting to visit our hospital. We are, we have a couple of pilots that we're running with long-term care homes right now, and we're seeing a significant drop in having a senior come from a long-term care facility, come into an eMERGE department, go from eMERGE into a, a bed, and then eventually back, you know, maybe within 36 to 48 hours back to the home. We're eliminating that by having that connectivity with the subspecialty and specialty services right to the home and being able to do that treatment and that work there. That is, for me, one of the most um, important things we're doing because we often focus about the front door of a hospital. How do we, you know, uh, within the eMERGE proper, or how can we use wearables or apps, et cetera? But to be honest, we need to focus on the back door of the hospital as well. So, Mike, I mean, you, you don't manage uh, long-term care homes, but you certainly deal with them and support them with, uh, with your technologies. From that end, on the other side of the back door, as Michelle called it, uh, what is emerging and what, what do you see as the biggest tech challenges uh, uh, that prevent us from providing better care for our elder, elderly population? So if you think about it, I look at some of our, our U.S. customers where it's skilled nursing facilities, not the old folks' homes from you know 20 years ago, have customers where their average length of stay for their patients is eight days. They go and they get rehab. They go back to the place where they want to live. Well, the only way, you, if you walk into the, a skilled nursing facility, call it a Genesis Powerback Center, um, it would look, resemble more of a med surge unit of a hospital than your traditional long-term care facility that uh, that most of us would identify with. And the idea is, if you're going to care for patients at that high acuity level, the only way you're going to do it is with technology. Simple technologies to help with two things. One is help them with simple things like medication administration so they understand, and a platform to engage the informal caregiver, daughter or daughter-in-law, two, three times on the way, son across town, so they can help with, did dad take his meds? It's 9.30. Do we know dad took his meds? If not, is dad following his discharge plan? Simple, simple technologies, internet of things in people's homes, so you can provide that remote care, include the informal caregiver, are going to take a lot of cost out of the system. And it's going to be necessary when the silver tsunami hits. So social behavior is a big challenge for anyone trying to innovate. The technology can be amazing, but if you don't have behavior change, it's not, uh, it's not going to be adapted. When I look at other sectors, I think of other sectors, entertainment moved quickly. And we see with innovation, it's always slow, slow, slow. It's like that ketchup bottle. And then a lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, we see it in banking. Very slow. People like their branch. They want to deal with people. And then suddenly... Uh, Everyone's comfortable, uh, regardless of age, with, uh, with mobile apps because it's just a lot better and frees up your time to do other things. Are you, either of you, seeing hints of this in healthcare, or is it just the big ocean that we're all afraid to c- cross because we don't want to s- even think about self-caring? We want to be with a professional. It, let me take it from a couple of angles. From a patient population perspective, there's no doubt there's a generational uh, gap um, you know, some of the um, statistics I've seen is anywhere from 45 to 50% non-adoption of our seniors in using technology uh, to be able to do self-care or managed care. So um, 45% of the seniors coming into your hospital don't want to use... Wouldn't want to use... Wouldn't uh, want to use. No, they want a, a face and a name and they want to have a conversation about something. But on the younger side and, and on the professional caregiving side, um, if you are a hospital today that is not implementing or has implemented a state-of-the-art um, uh, operating system, you will have trouble attracting new talent. There's no doubt in my mind. 
our residents. Uh, we're we're just in the middle of an installation of uh, uh, our our new electronic platform, and um, and five years ago, residents coming in, new nurses coming in from other hospitals who had adopted, would say, "I love working here, but the technology is killing me." And now we're uh, really a magnet for talent because everybody knows we're going to have state-of-the-art and this new generation wants that. They want it because it, it helps them do their work better. But in healthcare, they also want it because it's safer. There are so many checks and balances built into these new um, platforms that allow for such a, a degree of safety that we have never had before. I want to get your thoughts first on the frontier technologies that we should be thinking about. Uh, there's always exciting technologies that you see on YouTube or you go to a conference and you see robots doing this or that. How close are we, Michelle, in the hospital realm? And then I'll turn to you, Mike, to get a perspective from the uh, long-term care home of this real revolution in both devices. Are we going to see robots doing things with wearables and then also the software, which may be is less exciting on YouTube, but sometimes more uh, yeah. more powerful. When am I going to see a robot, Michelle? Well, we hospital? have a robot in our ho- We have two robots in two different ways. We have a surgical robot and we have Tug, who delivers pharma- uh, your medications uh, throughout the hospital. So they're here. The issue is when will it be um, the norm and not the exception? And to, you know, and you you alluded to this at the beginning, John. The financial constraints. I can't raise share capital. So I have to, through, you know, uh, the allocations through government and good efficiency management and cash management, look at how I can create working capital to, to invest in these things. And in any given day, a hospital is probably carrying between 10 to $15 million in, in uh, deficits around equipment needs. And then when you get to innovation needs, you know, there isn't a lot. In fact, there's no money left over for that because we're not funded in that way. So that is a really big barrier. And, and you know, there's many things that we can do about that, and, and we're trying as a sector. But fundamentally, we have to start thinking about um, the technology infrastructure investments in the same way we thought about bricks and mortar over the last 50 years. We need to start thinking about that capital investment in technology in a way that actually achieves uh, this this uh, revolution that you talk about, John. But the other point I would make is we also have to be disciplined in how we choose what technologies. And um, again, I I could walk out and go to my office today and I'll have several emails from excellent companies that all have a solution to solve my problem. And yet, how do we choose? And how do we choose as a sector that standardizes it across all hospitals so that we don't create a mishmash of solution where in Windsor you get a different standard of care than you may get in Mississauga. Yeah, I think, you know, the uh, robotics are exciting, but I think there's the earlier things are going to make a more dramatic difference. I think the Internet of Things and artificial intelligence are going to be enormous. So you think of the Internet of Things. I mean, everything has a chip in it now. Everything's being recorded. Five years from now, if you think that Within a uh, five-minute period, if you're living, especially in an institution, that 60,000 pieces of data won't be collected on, you're mistaken. They will be. But when you've got all that data, you can't act on that data. You need machine learning and artificial intelligence to rationalize that and understand that. And then get it to a point, not just more data or alarms and bells, bring it to a decision point where those things that human beings are uniquely qualified to do, which is the critical decision-making with the right information, 
that's going to be absolutely uh, critical in this market. So tell us a bit about where you want to take Point Click Care. I mean, it's a company that has 1,200, 1,300 employees. It's an amazing Canadian success story that not enough Canadians know about. But as we move deeper into the data age and with all that machine learning is giving us uh, the capabilities to, to, to do with that data, where do you see uh, PCC going? Yeah, I think the, uh, we're going to continue to expand. I mean, if I look at our, our customers, they only um, have adopted about a quarter of the problems we can solve for them. So they may use us just for basic electronic health records, medication management, and, uh, and to get bills out the door. But there's so much more we can do for them. So we, we really have to continue to push to drive more, uh, more and more adoption within our customer base. And, and, and there's you know, two limiters. One is they've got to get the funding. So the return has to be measured in days and weeks, not in years. Um, so we have to relentlessly simplify how, how quickly we can implement those things so they can adopt really a full, a full footprint of technology. The second piece is really taking all of that data that we've been collecting for years from our customers and turning it into actionable insights, whether it's for managing you know, an individual's health care and connecting them across the continuum or it is you know, trying to change the way you, you uh, care for populations of, of people. One of the things that we've done recently, and this was really driven by a sea change in how um, providers were are funded uh, south of the border, which is they they started to get penalties for above average readmission rates. A readmission could cost anywhere from you know twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. So somebody goes from hospital, goes to say a skilled nursing facility, they bounce back and it blows up the whole economic model. So they started to put penalties in place that if you have above average readmissions, you're, um, we're going we're gonna to hold back some of your funding and give it to those people who have a lower readmission rate. Well, behavior changed overnight. And people started saying, wow, we, need to, we now care what happens when they leave the four walls of my hospital and they go to that skilled nursing facility. Well, what's going on with them? I need to understand what's going on when they leave my building, whether they go to home health, their home, or to skilled nursing. Now, typically the highest risk for them was ones that were going to a skilled nursing building, had five or six comorbidities. If they came back, they knew it was going to be expensive. It was bad news. So one of the things that we started to do is you know, starting to connect them across the continuum saying, look, you, we can give you insights so you can follow your patient after they leave here. You've got four patients that went to this skilled building, the seven that went here, nine over there. Here's a dashboard in real time. You can manage them in real time. And before they arrive at, at the uh, long-term care facility, you've already reconciled the meds. You've already sent over everything electronically, not a binder with a bunch of paper that's on their chest when they come in on the gurney. Everything comes electronically. They can reconcile the meds before they even get there. And then the hospital can connect with the long-term care facility and be identified everything that, that's going on. So for us, it's really trying to connect across the continuum, allow, allow for care coordination right across the continuum. So that's a big growth area. And I think the third one is we've really opened up our platform to democratize uh, and unleash innovation where we've, uh, we just opened this up last year where we publish our API so that third-party vendors, whether they've got an Internet of Things device or they've got an application that they want to connect to our core application or they've got a technology-enabled service where they can build it on our platform. We've got some 700 companies that are now in the program, developing and innovating on our platform to solve real problems of healthcare. So really unleashing uh, innovation. Oh, that's a, a fantastic outlook. Uh, I've been next to those gurneys with those clipboards on it. It's just <laughs> crazy. And Michelle, I'm wondering, I mean, that sounds so obvious uh, and, and from, from a lay perspective, uh, something we should just do. 
there's probably reasons we're not doing it. But how close are we to that sort of integrated data-driven model, especially for elderly patients who are in and out, in and out? Yeah, I'm not as optimistic as Mike would be. Uh, I think you said five years. I, I think there's a lot more that has to happen to make that happen. Why? So everything, we talked about the financial investment, so I'll just, I'll leave that uh, aside. Secondly, you've got regulatory issues around how we share information. I have so many workarounds for the data sharing that occurs with all of our various third-party vendors. It, um, it, you know, it looks like this massive web. Um, that has to change. And I, again, I think there's, there's certainly indications that it will, but it will be slower than we want it to be. On any given day in, in our hospital, there is a cybersecurity issue going on somewhere in the world in healthcare and definitely somewhere in North America in healthcare. And so we're constantly thinking about this interconnectivity of systems and how are we protecting ourselves from that and, and the, the cost associated with what is just a basic need, uh, before you can start to, uh, to, to, you know, open your platforms up and, and invite uh, folks in, but but fundamentally it is going to happen. And and I I would add to what Michael has said because what he said is absolutely correct, and it's the right model. And and I believe you know AI will not only solve some of our issues around how we treat patients, the safety, the quality, the experience itself, but it's also going to help us. I think it'll help in, in human capital uh, issues that we have. And, um, and the shortages that we're seeing in human capital in healthcare. And so it, it's a, you know, it's a very positive thing, but it's going to happen slower than we would like for all of those reasons, financial, regulatory, um, the whole security and privacy issue and, and so on. I will say, I believe we have a government today and not a political statement when I make it or a partisan statement, but we have a government today that has said the existing system does not work and they have disrupted it. They have unstuck some things, and this is good for us. This gives us now an environment in which to go back now and replace things in a way and augment it in a way that actually can create progress. So we're quite excited about that. And what, what simply that. has that allowed you to do, that kind of disruption? What has, how has that allowed you to innovate? It's allowed for new solutions to be on the table. Solutions, for example, uh, related to funding, where... We were told we could only use certain funding in an envelope for some things. We've been able to move that funding into other areas, like on virtual care, as an example, to be able to find the funding to start a pilot that proves, in fact, what Michael talked about, which is less people coming through the eMERGE, less people staying in the hospital who otherwise could have stayed at home or who could have stayed in their long-term care facility safe. And, and just to put a point on that, you know, the average hospital cost a year for a bed is anywhere between 250000 to 400000 depending on the type of bed you're using in a hospital. The average cost of a bed in long-term care is, I'm going to say, between thirty and $40,000 a year. A tenth. That is a staggering difference. And so every person we keep out of hospital who doesn't need to be there allows for us to deal with that silver tsunami and allow those people who need to be in there in a hospital bed, being treated, being cared for, different word, and not in a hallway. And again, to come back to Trillium, on any given day, we are treating between 100 to 150 patients more than we have beds. 
And we have almost 200 beds outside of our hospital in Halton, Runnymede, Humber, because we don't have enough space. We are the poster child in so many ways for what's happening in the system. But we're also the poster child for disrupting it and changing it in all the ways that both Michael's talked about, John, you've alluded to, and I've talked about with respect to both technology. But I don't want us to forget the other side that you talked about, which is the human side of it, and ensuring that we're using technology for what I'll call the more transactional things so that we can apply that human capital to the human things that need to be done. So on, on the skills challenge, because as I said, we, we, we've done a big humans wanted uh, research project, long-term uh, research project, looking at the future of work. We're doing a sector deep dive with, with healthcare and looking at the challenges and, and opportunities because uh, healthcare is the fastest growing jobs creator <laughs> or has been over the last decade. And there's no indication that that is going to slow, but the skills needed because of these technologies are changing. Uh, so Mike, I wonder if I can start with you and seeing, seeing what you're seeing uh, on the front lines of long-term care. What kind of skills are starting to emerge that we're going to need more of, and how do we, how do we ensure we've got more people with those, with those skills? Yeah, I think the, um, the challenge is you need to make the, uh, the, the job more attractive. And in a full employment market, when you're making near minimum wage, and you think about it, if you're a PSW in a long-term care facility and you rode the bus for an hour to work and the first thing you did when you got there was change an adult incontinence product yeah. and somebody offered you 25 cents more an hour to go work at Walmart, what are you going to do? You better really, really love that job and it, it better be something you're deeply passionate about. Um, otherwise, you're going to leave. So it's going to be an enormous challenge. Uh, older nurses are aging out. So attracting people to the sector is going to be hard. Keeping people in the sector is going to be hard. I think, you know, universally, if I look across my customer base, the, it's, if it's not their number one challenge, it's their top two challenges. I, I have customers that, that can't open up their business. They can't take another home care patient. They can't open up a new wing of their assisted living facility because they can't find the staff to be able to do it. So I think in Canada or, or the U.S. or both? Both. It's both. It's, a, it, it's universally true. Um, and so from one of the you know, areas from, you know, that from a technology is, we know that you know, that if you don't provide a good experience in dealing with technology and start to remove the type of things, people who are attracted to healthcare probably have a big EQ. You give them a lot of documentation and paperwork and administrative work to do. They're not going to love the job and they're not going to stick around that job very long. That's why you even you know, mentioned that you know, having modern technology that people can interact with is, you know, is an attraction. And if you don't have it, it'll steer people away. So, you know, I don't know what the solution is to try to attract more people to, to, into the industry. It, it's, it's, it's going to continue to be a challenge. But all of the ones that we have in the industry, we need to try and keep and, uh, and have them focused on the things that humans are uniquely uh, good at, which is, you know, empathy and working with people and recognition and critical decision making. Remove all of the stuff. You have not have humans do computer work that uh, can be done by machines. Michelle, we're, we're running short on time, but, but I know this is a, a, a passion of yours as well as a concern. And I'm wondering, from a hospital perspective, how you see the skills crisis and what, uh, what we're going to need most as the, uh, as the tsunami hits. Okay, so we, we employ 12,000 people in our hospital. And uh, so we're seeing all the trends that, that people talk about. But I actually think it comes down to some simple things that we just have to keep focused on. And, and, and I think Mike has, again, alluded to some of these. Number one, we have to create environments where people can be successful in their work and to how we use technology to help, not hinder. 
Um, we have to continue to, to have great leadership in organizations where people want to come to work to work with people who really get the best out of them. We have to be investing in career ladders for PSWs. If you're a PSW in the community, where do you go next in healthcare? And within a hospital, we at least have those ladders that people can work through, and we need to extend that beyond the hospital walls so that people see themselves as having a uh, multiple-decade opportunity and not just an intervention or, or a timeout in, in healthcare. We need to also look at policies and practices around how people do work. I would say healthcare offer, offers for nursing and others one of the most flexible work arrangements where you, you, know, you can get multiple days off because you've done 12-hour shifts. And, and so there's lots of positive about um, the healthcare environment from a work perspective. But fundamentally... Um, I think, John, you said that we are seeing a net need in healthcare when people are getting worried about AI being a net drain on job creation. We don't see that in healthcare, first point. And, and then secondly, um, I would say in healthcare, it's also recession-proof. And, and so that allows for, I think, people who are really, young people who are really worried about the next 20, 30 years of their life around what they're seeing in the world Healthcare, op, uh, I really think, offers variety, complexity, reward, uh, personal, personal reward around being able to really marry your values as an individual. And we do not sell that enough in what we do in our sector. You know, one of the things we're finding in our research is uh, all that is true. We're going to need hundreds of thousands of more healthcare workers over the next decade. We're going to have all sorts of new technologies, but we're going to need more people. And it's, it's an important sector to, uh, for people who are being disrupted in other sectors to bring a lot of those human skills into healthcare. And we're going to have to rethink how we train people uh, through, through their lives uh, for mid-career transitions into, uh, into healthcare. So some really important challenges, but opportunities uh, as well there, uh, which we could talk about for, for ages. This has been a terrific conversation, but uh, regrettably time has, uh, has been our enemy here. If you've enjoyed the conversation, I'd encourage you to, uh, to subscribe to our podcast. Uh, if you, uh, you just go to your favorite podcast platform uh, and you'll find and look for RBC Disruptors. Uh, if you like what you hear or you have thoughts on us, give us a review. Uh, unless it's going to be a bad review, don't give us a bad <laughs> review. But uh, uh, give us a review, give us a rating. That helps us. It helps our podcast reach a bigger audience. And we're trying to, to inform and inspire the country on these important challenges. So we want that, uh, want that audience for RBC Disruptors to, to grow and grow. But Mike and Michelle, thank you so much uh, for being here today. And thank you for all you're doing to to help us uh, cope with the silver tsunami uh, and to make sure that Canada is an innovation leader in uh, in this critical space. It's been great to great to spend time with you. Thank you. For-